Hey, live from AC Second listeners, this is Sam Mulberry with our summer podcast series. This series is based on my spring 2018 sabbatical project in which I interviewed 15 faculty who won the Bethel University Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching. As part of this project, I created long-form video interviews with these people to talk about the art and craft of teaching, to talk about how they became teachers, how they think about teaching, how they think about education and interacting with students. So I want to share these full interviews with you throughout the course of this summer. If you're interested in watching these interviews, you can go to cwcradio.wordpress.com and look under the Teaching Project. If you want to watch the feature-length documentary, Why We Teach, which is based on this interview series, you can also find that at cwcradio.wordpress.com. We'll be dropping interviews from this series onto the podcast feed throughout this summer. Our interview today is with Zara Shady, the Faculty Excellence Award for Teaching winner from 2013. I'm Sarah Shady. I teach in the philosophy department at Bethel, and I started at Bethel in the fall of 2002. It's funny to think about how I ended up teaching when I look back over the course of my life because everyone in my family on both my mother's side and my father's side are teachers except for my own parents. So I grew up in a family of teachers, uh, and when I was a kid, I think I grew up um, thinking that my options as a woman were to be like an elementary teacher or a nurse or a secretary and none of those jobs sounded appealing to me at all. My teachers would always tell my parents at parent-teacher conference that I was, you know, the ideal student, very sweet and kind, very um, compliant. Um, I loved reading. I would read anything I could get my hands on, but I was really quiet in class. I would rarely ask questions. It was not until second um, semester of my sophomore year in college that I remember really asking a question in class because something someone else had said made me so mad. Like it, it lured me or just pulled me into the conversation. I went to college not having any career in mind at all. I started with a sociology major because I've always been interested in um, cultures and communities and societies and in my first semester of college I took an intro to philosophy class and I fell in love with it. I had no idea what philosophy was uh, prior to that class but I was able to um, take a class where we studied all the things I wondered about anyways and then I realized I could major in the stuff I wondered about all the time which sounded fantastic. So I added a philosophy major um, and it was during my sophomore year of college that one of my philosophy professors pulled me aside after class and said, you know, you're, you're, you're really good at this. You've got some talent. Have you ever thought about going on to teach? And I thought, um, you know, I'd not really thought about teaching as a career um, ever at that point in time, but I thought that I, I loved philosophy and the idea of teaching college students so that I could have conversations with them about life and faith actually sounded like a really good fit. So I went to grad school hoping I would like teaching but never having had any teaching experience prior to that. When it was time to research graduate schools um, and pick where I was going to go, one of the reasons I settled on the University of South Carolina was because they offered a a one credit course every semester called Teaching Philosophy. And that's pretty rare in a graduate program. Usually 
earlier curriculum is focused exclusively just on the academic discipline itself, but I really liked that idea because I knew that, or I thought I wanted to teach, that if I chose this program, I'd be getting a considerable amount of teaching experience as well as learning to teach over the course of, of my time there. And in that class, it was great. Um, because it was, I mean, we did talk about things like how to construct a syllabus or policies for thinking about uh, FERPA and things like that. But really that space became um, a safe space to talk about this happened in class this week and I have no idea what to do with it. And other grad students as well as the professor who is facilitating conversation that day would weigh in. Um, we would observe each other teaching as part of that class and give feedback. And so that was an amazing uh, part of, of development for me to have already in grad school. So even though I had a lot to learn about teaching by the time I got to Bethel, I, I, in, a, in some ways I was further ahead. Bethel found me, which feels like kind of a funny story. I was still in graduate school at the University of South Carolina and working on my dissertation. Uh, and a job had opened up at Calvin that I applied for. Um, kind of on a whim and I was interviewed for it but they wanted someone with PhD in hand but it was a nice networking experience um, and about five months after that I got a phone call from Paul Reisner who is at that time chair of the philosophy department at Bethel saying that um, some friends at Calvin had passed along my CV and would I be interested in applying for a job that they had open and my first thought was no and then I talked to Jamie my husband about it and he he said you know it's not every day a job comes looking for you so why don't you at least look into it and I um, applied came up to campus for the interview not having ever been to Minnesota in my life no connections to Minnesota but it felt like a really great opportunity and a great place to start my career and so we moved here thinking that we would give it three years and then go on to the next thing. When I look back on teachers that I've had in the past, I, I, do, I do think how I think about being a teacher is shaped in terms of experiences that I had as a student, both positive and negative. Um, in high school, I was really fortunate to have amazing English and social studies teachers, teachers who would ask us really good open-ended questions and get us thinking about how ideas from the past related to the present. Um, and during my senior year of high school, we had the opportunity to enroll in something called a humanities seminar, which was a two-hour block uh, that was um, a combination of history, English, literature, and art and writing. And so it was taught from an interdisciplinary perspective and we got to do these amazing creative projects where we would um, write and edit our own magazine on a theme that we created and we each prepared to teach a two-hour seminar and I still remember exactly what I did. I taught about um, Picasso and the context of how Cubism developed after World War One, and um, looked at Gertrude Stein's poetry with Cubism, you know, and just a fantastic class. And so I think as a teacher that really shaped both my intellectual interest in um, intellectual history and how philosophy and art and culture are all intertwined, but also as a teacher thinking about how do I create um, projects and spaces and conversations for students to really get excited about what they're passionate about and and think about how ideas matter to their lives and actually get to do something with ideas.
I am a person who is pretty empathetic and so uh, it's fairly easy for me to, to think about or imagine what it would be like to be in someone else's shoes or to try to picture what someone else's view of the world would be. And so I think that figures into teaching in a couple of different ways because I think I do uh, spend a lot of time, well it comes naturally, but I, I spend a lot of time thinking about what's it like to be the student sitting in the chair in the classroom and how do I get them engaged in a topic? How do I inspire them? How do I um, build trust with them and, and lower the risk or perceived fear that they might have about a class? But then also in terms of trying to get students to be able to read empathetically and, and listen empathetically and study other topics with a position of empathy. That's um, something I really try to, to cultivate in my teaching. I also really like my personality likes to build connections between things, whether that's people or ideas or you know the overlaps between things. And so in my classes, I do structure them. So I'm even though I'm teaching philosophy, you know, I'll draw the connections through history and literature and current events and um, and be able to draw connections between what may seem like two very different things that two different students have said in the class, but be able to kind of weave it together. When I first started teaching, I was really good at the structure of a class, like how to structure the syllabus, how to write a lesson plan, um, how to kind of construct an assignment. What was really hard for me was feeling comfortable in the classroom. For a few years, I felt completely like an imposter. I felt like I had to act out the role of competent professor because I didn't feel like competent professor myself. Um, what I learned to appreciate a couple years in that actually if I took that model of teaching as acting, that it could allow me to try out some different personalities in the classroom, being more strict as a professor, being more lenient as a professor, trying to use humor, trying to be more serious until over time, I kind of, I, I developed my own personality or my own character for the classroom. And so now it feels natural, even though it didn't at all in the beginning. I would like to say that over time, the teaching Sarah and the real Sarah match up more. But it's interesting too, to think about, well, how much is who I am as a person shaped by who I am as in the classroom because I spend so much time in the classroom, but I do, I mean, in the classroom, I have the same amount of self-deprecating humor that I have just in real life with my friends. Um, in terms of empathy, trying to listen and understand and trying to get other people to listen, understand, I suppose that I, I do that too. Um, my, um, my parents always say that it makes perfect sense to them now to think about the fact that I became a philosopher because I was always asking questions and debating them on things from day one. So that part of me that's a questioner and a wonderer, I think that that's the same both inside and outside of the classroom. I was not a student at Bethel, uh, but there are a lot of uh, professors, colleagues now that I know that I um, really respect what they're doing in the classroom and they inspire me. Um, I think about Chris Moore in political science and I'm fascinated with the ways that he uses games um, 
as, as almost like labs in a humanity class to really practice out an idea. And I tried a couple of those in my contemporary moral issues interim class to get students thinking about the difficulties of making questions about justice and the distribution of resources. And it actually it worked and it was really fun and, and they were good learning examples. I really admire Amy Poppinga as a teacher from the history department. Um, because I feel like so many of her class periods are just beautifully crafted movements between um, the objectives for the day and the course content, but interesting discussion activities and bringing in a speaker or a film or maps or art. And it's, she's able to work all of these moving parts into one class period. I've learned a lot from Marian Larson in English about writing and how to construct a good writing assignment to really get the outcomes from students um, that you want. I love being at Bethel because I feel like we because we emphasize teaching so much, it's a great um, storehouse of people to learn from and, and learn alongside. I do see stages in my career uh, when I think about myself as a teacher. Um, and I, I'm trying to think what, what changes in each stage, and I think there's different things. I think sometimes I'll have an idea that's really important to me, and then I start to think about what, what would it be like to um, experiment with that idea in the classroom. So for an example, um, intellectually and in my own scholarship, I'm really interested in concepts of community and how we build um, inclusive community in democracy. And so I started an experiment in class a while ago called Community Day, which is was the idea that maybe once every two weeks the academic train stops in class and we just have a class period where we sit and discuss and try to pick up all the loose pieces that have been rattling around in our brains over the last two weeks uh, of class. Over time I've learned um, a lot about the fact that I, I think that teaching involves teaching social skills in college just as much as it does teaching content and that that's not something that stops once a student you know, finishes their K through 12 education. So increasingly now over the last few years, I've worked a lot more on how do I help students learn to become good listeners? How do I help students learn to sit with uncomfortable topics? Um, some of those things that we need more in our society to promote civility and civil discourse, I try to think about, well, how do I help teach students how to do that in the classroom? Um, I think over time too, just becoming more comfortable with who you are as a teacher and what you're good at and, and what you're not so good at. Um, you, you just, uh, it, it kind of gives you more permission to experiment with stuff in the classroom and you find something that really works or you find something that you'll never do again. But yeah, I do change over time. When I think about teaching at a Christian liberal arts college, um, you know, actually, it's interesting to kind of have a view of that over the last 16 years and think about how my answer to that question may have changed as well. Right now, I feel like we're in a time in where pop culture doesn't necessarily understand what the liberal arts are or appreciate them. And so I feel like one of my responsibilities teaching at a Christian liberal arts school is to um, help students understand the value of that, that they're not here solely to gain one set of skills geared towards, geared towards one set of a career path, but that the liberal arts gives them well-rounded skills. Um, 
to be a better human, you know, and, and to be a better human ties into what you'll do in your professional life, but it also ties into how you'll live in your neighborhood and how you'll live in your community and in your society and to be engaged um, in civic life and to live well in your spiritual community. And I think the liberal arts do that because we introduce students to um, a history of ideas and a history of social problems that they really have to wrestle with and come to understand that the, um, the ideas weren't always, um, haven't always been the same and um, that humans make their way through difficult times and that there's universal aspects of being human, whether it's suffering or joy and, and how we make meaning. Um, and also to help uh, teach the liberal arts well, I think that we really do need to cultivate skills like empathy and critical thinking and problem solving that will translate well into any career path. So um, it's helping students learn to value that, but in order for them to value that, I, I've got to do a good job at teaching them the skills so they, they understand what a liberal arts education even is. I am not the um, teacher who starts class with prayer or devotions every day and, and partly that's just a lot of my personality that I'm not someone who talks about my faith publicly a lot anyways and as a student that made me feel uncomfortable so um, I will bring faith directly into class in the form of prayer or scripture reading or um, reading a spiritual autobiography when it's relevant to the subject topic of the day. Um, but I like to think more of faith in the classroom as really trying to inspire students to think, how do I live well with the knowledge that I'm gaining? And I used to think about faith integration as I have my faith bucket of ideas and my disciplinary bucket of ideas like Legos, and now I have to figure out how to put them together to make a Lego tower that somehow works. Um, but that model never seemed to work for me because that's not how we live life. We don't live life with two separate buckets that don't make sense. I live life as a Christian philosopher and every day it makes sense in different ways because that's, that's just who I am. And I, or, you know, so what does it mean for a student to be a student at a Christian liberal arts college? Well, they're already doing both of those things. And so how do I do that well? How do I live out my faith in my academic practice? That's one of the things that I'm really trying to inspire students to do. Philosophy is so fantastic. There are lots of reasons why students should, should study it. I mean, one of the things that's like a bedrock for all other disciplines. Um, and so if you're studying political science, you want to study philosophy because we've got to think about co concepts of what, you know, what is justice? How do we define that? What does a good government look like and why? Um, if we're studying biology or physics or chemistry. I mean, we've still got philosophical concepts undergirding that in terms of what's the nature of reality. Is reality entirely material and natural? Is there a spiritual dimension of reality? How do we account for that? How do we think about the soul and the relationship between the soul and the body? Um, if we're talking about um, healthcare or business, philosophy is great for that because we've got a whole set of um, ethical principles undergirding how we ought to act with other people and how we ought to live. So I would argue that um, any major needs philosophy. Another reason why I love teaching philosophy is that it's a perennial discipline. So we keep asking the same questions that people were asking 2,500 years ago. Uh, and um, 
it's a space where you're invited in to weigh in and really think deeply about how you would answer those questions. And I think helping students learn how to examine who they are as people and examine their own lives is a crucial uh, skill to have, a crucial stage to go through in your own personal and social and spiritual maturity. I was just talking this weekend with a friend from undergrad who I had not seen in over 10 years. She's now a philosophy professor as well. And we were talking about um, programs that schools have in the medical humanities. And these, okay, they're by the term medical humanities, I do not mean a humanities student who um, wants to be like a journalist in, for healthcare, those sorts of things. So it's for a student who wants to go on in a medical career like nursing or like medicine, but really loves the humanities too, and or would really benefit from adding a humanities curriculum to a pre-med curriculum. And increasingly, actually, med schools are looking for this sort of degree. Humanities are important because we've got to understand and appreciate and value what it means to be human. And if you're going to be a physician or a teacher or a politician or a computer programmer, being able to understand that um, the people that you're interacting with are other humans who suffer, who um, make trying to make meaning of the world in a world that all often doesn't make sense, um, that we're influenced by the cultures in which we live in, that we see the world differently from different perspectives, that we value a lot of the same things, um, that amidst all of our differences, there's a lot of core similarity as well. I think the humanities teach us all of those things that help us then be better, more empathetic teachers, doctors, politicians, computer programmers. And I think in the world today, we've lost a lot of that. We've lost our ability to see another person as a human being. I think we see another person as a statistic, as a political party, as a consumer of something, um, as someone who listens to this news source or that news source. And, and we've lost what it really means to just be human and that we're all on the, that quest together. If I were to go back in time and pick a different major, I might have picked art history. I have no skills in actually producing art despite trying, but I love thinking about the ways that art on the one hand can be representative of the cultural context in which it's in, but also in the ways in which art is often ahead of the curve of shaping the questions um, that whether it's music or literature or visual arts, um, they're, they're provocative. They're provoking us to think about the world that we're living in in new ways, to see something through a different lens, to think about a question that hadn't otherwise occurred to us. Just on NPR yesterday, I, w I heard this story about a woman who is making visual representations of all of the human data that can be gathered about someone. So tracking your sleep patterns, but making art out of that or tracking your eating patterns and making art out of that and really pushing questions about what is all this data that we're gathering really say about us, which is a huge ethical question. It's a huge scientific question. But to think about it from the level of visual arts is also fascinating because she can help us see things that we wouldn't otherwise see if we're only looking at the data um, for numbers. And so I think the fine arts are crucial to our understanding of what it means to live in the world. 
I do think studying the sciences matter, and I say that as a person who always struggled in science classes. Sciences were always my weakest subject. But being able to understand how something works and why it works that way, whether it's the molecular structure of something or um, the, the physical um, principles by which something's operating, um, I do think we really need to understand how something works in order to understand what the possibilities are for what we can do with it. I guess I, in some ways I think of sciences as in a physical way mirroring what philosophers do. So as a philosopher, I want to know what I believe and why because that informs how I live my life moving forward. And then I think as a scientist, understanding how the natural world works or the physical world or the chemical world, whatever, how that works and why, because that then informs how we move forward with that information. It's interesting to think about if teaching is an art or a craft or a science, because I feel like I'm predisposed to answer that as a philosopher. Like maybe if I was a scientist, I would think of teaching as a science. I mean, I know there is a science to teaching that you can gather data about teaching and analyze and infer best practices about that. Um, but to me, teaching is more of an art and a craft. And if I think of art, as I was um, saying earlier, that art is valuable because it's provocative, I think teaching is valuable in, in the same way. Teaching is about provoking someone to think or react, not controlling the way that they think or act, or not um, dictating what the answer they come up with must be, but but opening up a space, provoking a space in which people will interact with ideas that then moves them forward. And I think it's a craft because I think every teacher needs to find their own way of doing it that's comfortable for them um, because otherwise it just comes off as, <laughs> as acting like I was in my first few years of teaching or, or pretend or trying to force a system in where it doesn't doesn't fit. I was thinking about metaphors of teaching and I like thinking of teaching as cooking instead of baking. I'm not a very good baker because baking requires um, precision and, and people who know me well know that I don't have anything in my life done very precisely or with uh, rigid edges to it. Um, so my cookies never turn out. But, um, but Cooking requires that, yeah, you do know some of the basic science of it, but there's the space for improvising and the space of adjusting to context or adjusting to need and often done on the fly. Um, and, and there's a craft to that. Um, and that, that's kind of how I think of myself as a teacher. My very favorite class to teach is existentialism, a 300 level philosophy class. Um, I love teaching that class because I love existentialism as a tradition in philosophy. Um, cause I'm driven by the questions about what does it mean to be human and how do we think well about that? How do we turn the philosophical lens on ourselves? Not talking about human beings generically as human nature, but the question, what does it mean to be human turned into, well, what does it mean to really be me? Um, and asking philosophy in that very personal way. Uh, I also like teaching that class because it's fun to teach upper level students. I'll have philosophy majors and minors in there, but often lit students and theology um, students or art, art majors, theater majors as well, um, students from the arts and humanities, thinking about these questions together and juniors and seniors are um, have 
some intellectual and spiritual and social maturity to dig into those questions deeper than, than we would as, as freshmen. I also really like teaching Intro to Gender Studies, although I would say that's the hardest class that I teach. Um, but I'm passionate about helping students become comfortable sitting with ideas that initially seem dangerous to them or ideas that they're afraid of. And so Intro to Gender Studies is a daily labor of taking um, a topic that's controversial and controversial in a Christian um, setting and helping students learn how to sit well with controversy. Just the other day we were talking about the debate over transgender bathroom laws and um, having students, you know, tasking them with tell me the good reasons for those laws and the good reasons against those laws. So you make sure you understand both positions and then tell me what you think and why and, and getting to watch students be really reflective about that and realize that the default position they started with, um, even if they ended up with the same position, they were now better informed or and more empathetic about the other side or they changed their mind. But also realizing, you know, at the end of class, students wanted me to tell them what my answer was. And I never do that, especially in a lower level class. I might in an upper level class, but at all, that's not the point. Um, the point isn't what you memorizing what I think. The point is you having a good reason for what you think. Um, so that's where I head in that class, but that it's a really, it's an uphill battle, but it's fun. And I get to do what I'm passionate about. And I think about what's unique about teaching philosophy. My first thought is, is to kind of wonder, any answer that I could say to this, somebody might be like, oh, that happens in a history classroom too, or that happens in an economics classroom. Cause I guess I don't know what it's like to teach anything else. Um, but my instinct is to say that what's unique about teaching philosophy is that the conversation never goes the same way twice. You can throw the same question out to any group of people and depending on who the people are in the room and what their background is and how they're predisposed to answer the question, um, the conversation can go a different direction. I think that makes teaching really fun because I get to do a lot of improvising. I often encounter unexpected paths in the classroom. So it's always getting me to rethink and re-question things on my own. I learn a lot from my students just in terms of how they interact with the material. Um, there's no set, um, you know, textbook of you have to cover this content. You know, there's the people in the canon that over the course of a time, a philosophy student should encounter the questions they should introduce. But there's so many different ways of getting at the material in a philosophy class and that makes it fun and that makes it a good area to experiment in. I hope that someone would describe Sarah Shady's classroom as a space an open space where you can feel comfortable to experiment with ideas and investigate questions um, without fear of what the answers are, that I, I want it to be a space where students are invited to almost in a way play with an idea, that it's like you're trying a set of glasses on and seeing the world through that way. And then you get to decide what you think about that world, but, but you're allowed to experiment with it, with your beliefs and with your ideas and your reasons for holding things. Um, and, and that you don't have to be afraid of that because in, in the class um, you're going to, you know, your, your grade is gonna be based on how well you thought, not the answer that you came up with. I like when students are prepared to engage in that though, to be in my class and get 
a lot out of it, you have to be an active participant. If you just want to sit back and listen to me, you know, kind of shake content into your brain, fine, but you'll have, you'll have missed the point. So yeah, I like, it, it goes better when students are actively engaged in the material. Basic expectations in my class, uh, number one, respect, and number two, openness, and those tie together. Um, actually, in most of my classes early on, we talk about the principle of charity. So how do you read and interact with another idea, whether that's an idea from someone in the classroom and an idea we're encountering in a film or a textbook, how do you take a spirit of charity to that idea? And by charity, I mean, um, trying to understand that idea for what it really is and trying to understand the reasons why someone else holds that idea. I'll often tell students very few people have really stupid ideas for their strongest beliefs. Um, just because you don't understand them doesn't make them stupid. And so trying to help students understand what is someone else's good reason for this belief that they have? And so I'll often ask students a question of what did the other person get right? What did Marx get right? Or what did Socrates get right? Or, um, you know, to, to really be able to give charity to another position. Even if you don't agree with the conclusion, you can still say there's something true about this view of the world or true at least about the way they ask the question. And if I was this person, here's how the world would make sense. I think this is one of the areas where I've learned the most about teaching over the years, um, it, how to lower the level of perceived fear or threat or risk in the classroom. And that fear and risk can be about a lot of different things. It can be about, I'm not sure I want to investigate my beliefs because what if I end up having to change my mind about something or what if I find out I really didn't have a good reason for something. Um, that fear or risk can also be, you know, I, I was the student who didn't talk in a college class until second semester of my sophomore year. So that I get that fear of like, well, I don't want to do this in an open space with other people. Um, I try to be really transparent in the class about my own fears and threats. So early on in intro to gender studies, even on the first day, we do these exercises where we make lists of stereotypes, you know, for different questions and to get at different points or to make different points. But really, I'm just trying to get the students comfortable talking about things that we don't usually talk about things. I grew up in a family that didn't talk about anything. And so some of the things I have to say out loud in intro to gender studies make me feel like I'm going to die. But I even try to. So I model to students my own, you know, fear in that. I do try to get them to think about um, the class as play or as experiment. So try out this idea and run with it. And I'll often tell them on an assignment, the end product of this assignment does not have to be what your belief is now and is going to be for the next 30 years of your life. Pick something, investigate it, evaluate it, develop it, but, but you don't have to own it if you don't want to, and you don't have to own it yet if you don't want to. So to really encourage the, it's okay to experiment in here, and that doesn't say anything definitive about what you actually think or believe. I also start with less controversial things and move towards more controversial things because I want students to know that they can trust me. 
And, you know, Professor Shady, when we were talking about this reading over here, she didn't, you know, jump on the person who raised a question or disagreed. So she's probably not going to do that now. Um, I'll often tell students too, here's all the things I'm not sure I know the answer to, to model for them intellectual humility, but also being okay with questions and um, the value of thinking about things even if we don't have the definitive answer. So those are some of the things I do. I often have students um, early in, in lower level classes work in groups because it's less scary to put a group's ideas on the board than to put your own ideas on the board. Um, or have students initially deal with some controversial topics um, through uh, individual reflection. So it's just a, a conversation between the student and I, and it's written, it's not even a face-to-face -face conversation. And so I can affirm and push in my responses back, but it, it's um, not as scary as having to share your ideas in front of the whole group. I think relationship is complicated when we think about teaching, especially at Bethel, because we have this oft-repeated story about Edgren saying, you know, our Bethel should be a place where the relationship between teacher and student is one of friends. And I think yes and no. <laughs> I love teaching at Bethel because it's small enough that I do get to know my students and I do get to build ongoing relationships with them. Um, inside and outside of the classroom and I can put names to faces and I can see students in the same classes year after year and I can remember them when they're walking across the stage graduating and I can stay in communication with them after graduation. I just got a text today from a student who graduated over 10 years ago who wants to meet up for coffee next week and that you know and that's fantastic and I think that's the beauty of being at a small college because those sorts of long-term relationships can develop. At the same time I do think it's complicated because there is a power dynamic at play between teacher and student. There, there's a few power dynamics. I mean, there's the person who's issuing the grade versus the, you know, the student who's earning the grade. There's the student who's in some ways may think of themselves as the consumer purchasing a product from me, the customer service agent or whatever. So um, I think it's complicated and students don't necessarily know how to have respectful relationships with faculty members. And so part of it is helping students um, come to understand what healthy working relationships look like. And in some ways, I think we can model workplace behavior um, for them. Sometimes over the years with students I get to know well, sure, that turns into a friendship. But uh, um, I think the most important thing in a classroom is for a student to feel like the relationship is one of respect and trust. Um, and we may not see eye to eye, um, but there's, I respect them as a person, they respect me um, as the authority on the subject matter or the fellow questioner. Um, I also think gender dynamics really play into how we think about relationship between teacher and student without, without even getting into the, you know, the Me Too campaign and the harassment issues. That's not what I mean as much as um, how we view men and women in society and particularly in Christian society. I think that complicates how we think about relationships, particularly as a female professor because students often want me to be like a big sister or actually as I get older now they want me to be like a mom but I, I'm not 
here to be their mom. Um, and I don't think they expect the same amount of um, emotional support and empathetic understanding from male professors. And so if I don't give that, there's more of a judgment on a female professor than there would be on a male professor for that. I hope that students would say that I inspired them um, to do something. Whether I, I inspired them to think about an issue more deeply and that that would shape how they think about controversial things in the future or that I inspired them to think about the reasons why they believe something and that got them on a path of a more examined life or that I inspired them um, Plato says, you know, to know the good is to do the good so that I've inspired them to not just have a bunch of intellectual content, but to live out their life um, in a meaningful way, loving their neighbors, just no matter who their neighbor is, valuing something beyond their own professional and material um, success. So I would hope they would say that I inspired them. I hope that they would say that I was fair and that I respected them no matter what. Um, I hope they would say that I cared about them and that I care about who they continue to become in the future. When I think about advice for a new teacher, I think about something that um, Don Postema told me in my first year of teaching at Bethel. Don is now a retired professor from Bethel's faculty, but he told me to give myself permission um, that it was going to take at least three times through a class to feel like I had it the way I wanted it. And I've applied the three times rule to a class, to a syllabus, to a particular lecture. I think what's so valuable about that advice is it gets back to the idea of teaching as experimentation. So it gives you the chance to say, I'm not gonna get this right the first time. So I'm gonna try it this way and see what I learn. Um, and it invites you into self-reflection about your teaching to say, okay, what did I learn? What do I wanna keep the same this time? What do I wanna change the next time I do that same thing? Um, I think it also lowers the threat level of a teacher to have to be perfect every time or to have to get it right every time. Um, because, because you can't. And one of the reasons that you can't is because you only control 50% of the classroom or less. When I started teaching, I had the idealistic view that if I was just a really good teacher and I cared about my students and I, and I tried hard and I communicated with them, that everybody would be capable of getting an A or everybody would get an A because I'd inspire them and they'd want to learn. Um, and then I realized, yeah, but they don't always care and they don't always do their work or they don't always come or they don't always um, act respectfully in the classroom. I mean, I'm making it sound grim because it's, that's not like that's the, the majority experience amount of the time, but um, yeah, you gotta give yourself permission to let go of the things that you don't control in the classroom too. I would love for students to think about their education as a chance to do what they love. Yes, there's the pre pressure of a career and paying back the student loans, and I do not in any way want to undermine that. But if you allow yourself to pursue the path you love, you will get to the place where you have a meaningful career and that passion and those skills pour into it. So to not feel like, 
like I did as a student, well, you know, as a female, my three choices are to be a secretary, an elementary ed teacher, or a nurse, because that's what women do, and then, um, you know, and then you get married and have kids and stay home, so what you pick doesn't matter. Anyways, you know, and, and to get to say, no, I'm gonna actually figure out what I'm wired to do and what I love. To, so I, I would advise them to take a class just because it sounds fun, because you never know where that might lead you, or to, um, to ask your professors what do they read what you know what do they read outside of class what are their favorite books and start reading those things and see what path that takes you on um, i'd encourage students to study abroad and see the world outside of the way um, we see it here um, and you know you've got an incredible amount of freedom in your four years of college so use it you know going down paths, being creative, being curious. My advice to Bethel is that we should own and embrace and sell what we're really good at. And what we're really good at is helping students learn to sit in the middle of difficult places and issues. We're not the most conservative school. We're not the most liberal school. We. Um, we have a lot of diversity of beliefs, um, perspectives in the faculty, um, and students will be exposed to that. And let's just embrace that and sell it. I mean, what does our world actually need right now? People who are better sitting in the middle than polarizing at the two extremes. Um, I wish that another part of who we are, that I wish we would embrace and market forcefully is the pietist part of us for god's glory and neighbor's good what could be better than that that we're here to become the people that god intends for us to be by serving everyone in the world around us regardless of who they are in whatever way that god empowers us to serve and that's a beautiful part of who we are then the third part that we should need we should shamelessly embrace and sell about our identity is that we are a christian liberal arts institution we are not merely a vocational skill um distributing college there and I don't want to diminish the value of technical colleges or vocational schools. Those play a really important role in society, but that's not who we are. Um, that we can help students um, have a better understanding of what it means to be human, broaden their horizons, equip them beyond their skill set to be able to um, meaningfully engage the world as they move forward.